0: Welcome to the Dragonlance Saga Gaming Saga System episode. This is the third episode in the Saga Book of the Fifth Age series. It is Kirinor Guildember the 19th, and my name is Adam. I am starting a Saga System Dragonlance Fifth Age game this coming weekend, this Saturday. So I thought it'd be fun to read the core rules aloud and discuss them with the live audience. I would like to take a moment and thank the members of this channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. Chapter five. How many spells do you have? Steele asked, shouting over the rush of wind in their ears. Are they powerful? What do they do? I may not speak of such matters, Palin answered, clutching the spell book under one arm. It is forbidden. Steele looked back at him, suddenly grinned. The hell it is! You don't have that many, do you? Palin smiled. They're very complex, and I didn't have much time to study them. How many do you have? One, but, Palin added gravely, It's a good one. Flying to do battle with chaos, dragons of summer flame. Kryn's history tells a story of the battle of heroism and virtue against darkness and chaos. To be sure, knights and armies have played their role in this saga, defending towers and holding out against impossible odds. However, as the above passage illustrates, one should never overlook the part that magic played in the forging of history the Old Magic. Long ago, the gods created three moons and set them in the sky over Kryn. Each of the three gods of magic, good, evil, and neutral, took one of these moons as an abode and gifted the world with his own special variety of magic. At the close of the Fourth Age, however, this triad of deities withdrew from the affairs of the mortal world along with the rest of Kryn's pantheon. In the wake of their departure, the world's magic seemed to flicker out like a candle flame snuffed by a sudden wind. In the last hours of the fourth age, Palin Magir, a young mage of the white robes, felt terrified by the loss. Hesitating, he asked the great god Paladine, in the form of the w- wizard Fizban, whether any magic remained in the world. The god responded by saying, Not as you know it. There may be other magic. It's up to you to find it. Taking this advice to heart, Palin set about determining what supernatural powers might exist in a world without gods. In conjunction with the other members of the last conclave of wizards, he discovered that the newest magic of Kryn was also the oldest. When the god Rayorks, i don't know why I said it like that—Reorx fashioned the world. All the gods imbued it with magical energies. It is this divine power that also gave life to the dragons and other magical creatures. When the gods departed in the wake of the Chaos War, their radiance uh, remained behind. Though the powers of the priests and mages faded from the world, it lingered on. Compared to the orders of magic, which the gods taught their chosen mages during the Age of Dreams, this primordial power was difficult to harness and seemed much less powerful. It took three of the finest minds on Kryn, the Master of the Tower, the Archmage Palin Magir, and the mysterious Shadow Sorcerer to master this arcane power. From this last conclave, knowledge of sorcery, as this new ancient magic became known, trickled out to the rest of the world. It did not take long for Palin to found a great academy of sorcery, where those interested in the magical arts could come to study under the skilled hands of master sorcerers. Chapter 3 of Dusk or Dawn offers more details on the academy. At the current time of the Fifth Age campaigns, the year 31 SC, only a handful of people understand the theory and practice of the new sorcery. Heroes who can wield this magic are practitioners of a rare and exciting art. The New Magic Just as the fifth age is a time of primordial sorcery, so too is it an era shaped by the discovery of a new form of magic. Called mysticism by its practitioners, it is the power of life and the energy of the heart. Where some have called sorcery a cold and hard magic, mysticism remains generally warm and nurturing. Exactly when the powers of mysticism first manifested themselves on Krynne has become a subject of some debate. However, none argue the fact that it was the hero of the lance and priestess Goldmoon who first quantified and perfected the use of this power. After the departure of her goddess Mishikal, patron of healing, and the death of her husband and daughter, Goldmoon experienced an epiphany. She found the strength within herself to heal a young dwarf badly wounded in a battle between two green dragons. After becoming aware of this power, she traveled to the island of Shalsi, site of a once powerful magical godmark called the Silver Stair. There, with the help of a wise old sage and a band of dwarves and other followers, she began to build the fastness that would become the Citadel of Light. Goldmoon's dream was to create an example to inspire the races of Kryn to live together in peace and harmony. In the years that followed, Gold Moon felt the power within her growing stronger and stronger. She became sensitive to a warm radiance that seemed to emanate from within her and from within all living things. In time, she learned how to exert her will and control these energy fields. Having mastered the art of mysticism, Goldmoon began to teach others the skill. At first its practice was confined to Chalsea, but before long, those who had come to study under Goldmoon, especially former priests and clerics of the departed gods, began traveling the world and taking on students of their own. Chapter 3 of Dusk or Dawn offers more details on the Citadel of Light. Using Magic From the standpoint of game mechanics, sorcery and mysticism work in, more or less, the same way. Only heroes with an ability code of A or B in Reason have the training to cast sorcerous spells. Similarly, only those with a spirit code of A or B can employ the powers of mysticism. Of these individuals eligible to practice magic, only those with high scores in the appropriate ability can gain much benefit from their spellcasting. Those with lesser scores may have received magical training enabling them to cast the occasional spell, but their lack of natural aptitude makes this effort fatiguing and difficult for them. The Role of Magic The amazing power of sorcery and mysticism makes it possible for heroes to accomplish feats that would be impossible for the common man. However, this is not a power without limits. Narrators and players must consider some important checks and balances in the use of both sorcery and mysticism. Invocation time. Magic is difficult to use. Only heroes with exceptionally high ability scores and codes can cast spells fast enough to be effective. To be sure, many heroes have an understanding of magic that may, um, they may cast minor spells, but they find the whole process far too difficult to make regular attempts practical. In most cases, lesser sorcerers and mystics will find themselves forced to spend much time and effort casting even the simplest of spells. Such heroes undoubtedly ought to depend more upon their swords and their, than their spells. Uh, how's it going, Chris? Thanks for joining live. Michael, how you doing? Good to see you. Uh, Goldmoon, my dear, how you doing? Good to see you. Other common limitations. Practitioners of either sorcery or mysticism find themselves faced with certain limitations in addition to invocation time. Some restrictions affect both types of magic, while others apply to just one. Words and Gestures Most sorcerers invoke words of power to help them focus the energy of Kryn's primordial magic while casting the spell. Similarly, many of those attempting to harness their own spiritual energies intone personal mantras or chants. The arcane arts may not require magical words and gestures for successful spellcasting, but most practitioners find such behavior helpful, and the concepts make for colorful roleplaying. Because Because the speaking of these words becomes so vital to many workers of magic, a hero suddenly deprived of speech finds it much more difficult to channel the diffuse energies around and within him. He may not be able to do it at all. In fact, some societies cut out the tongues or hands of sorcerers and mystics who have used their power for evil. time travel. The river of time flows unendingly, often torrentially, from Kryn's past. The power of wizards from past ages actually tapped into this current, enabling others to travel in time. However, magic in the fifth age is not fueled by the machinations of the gods, as was the power of past ages. It is an integral part of a world moving forward in time from the dawn of all things. It is grounded in the spirits of those who live in the here and now. It moves with the world on its journey, never against it or beyond it. The cosmic forces that hold Kryn and its people to their path in the fabric of time and space also hold its arcane power to the same path. In short, magic cannot be used for any form of time travel. The closest spellcasters of the fifth age can come to traveling in time is using divination magic. Diviners may see events that transpired long ago or prophesy those that may yet come to pass, but they nev- neither travel in time nor in any way affect that which has been or will be. Spell points. Spell casting is a demanding practice. Channeling and expending magical energy saps both mind and body. To reflect this toll, the saga rules employ a spell point system to govern the number of spells sorcerers and mystics can cast each day. Majestic, impressive spells deplete these points rapidly, while lesser magics allow casters to conserve their allotment of spell points. As spell point totals derive from a hero's reason or spirit ability score, only exceptionally gifted people will generate enough points to make uh, spellcasting possible. A player determines his sorcerer's total daily sorcery points by squaring his reason score, multiplying it by itself. Thus, the great wizard Palin Majir with a reason of 10 has 100 points available available to him each day. 10 by 10. Players of Mystic squares uh, their hero's spirit score for their total daily mysticism points. Thus, a mystic with a spirit of 7 has 49 points available to him every day. Rare heroes with high reason and spirit scores accumulate both sorcery and mysticism points and therefore can wield both types of magic. How many spells can a hero cast with 100 or 49 points? The number of spell points required for casting is equal to the spell's difficulty rating, just like an action's difficulty, as explained in Chapter 3. Full details on the use and recovery of spell points are offered later in this chapter. Thank you, new guy, not Chris. I appreciate you, man. (laughs) Into the last, homies. You guys are just trying. Trying. Alright, the scope of sorcery. Without a doubt, the greatest difference between the old orders of magic and the magic that springs directly from primordial Kryn is its effect on living creatures. During the Age of Starbirth, celestial magic glowed in the molten rock Reork shaped into the planet Kryn on his great forge. The dragons, formed from Reorks from the world's metals, were born to the magic of Kryn. Other races, such as the Ireda, ancient ogres, and elves were gifted with this magic by the gods themselves, But the dawn of the world, magic was not available to all. Eventually, with the assistance of the three gods of magic, non-magical creatures like humans learned the wizardly arts called the Orders of Magic. But now, without the gods to sustain their arcane orders, the magic born of the forge can no longer directly affect the living. Magical creatures like those mentioned above still enjoy the benefits of Kryn's primeval magic, but only according to their ancestral gifts, not according to their wills. No sorcerer in the fifth age can restore life to the dead, heal the wounded, read another's thoughts, or directly strike down the living. Without the touch of the gods, any effect that involves a mental or biological process remains beyond the reach of even the most powerful sorcerers. I wanna uh, make a note on that too really quick if I may. No one dies unless there's a coup de gras. And that extends to magic. So if you do 50 damage to someone with only uh, 10 points in their uh, hand of fate, and they have to expend their entire hand of fate in order to you know, uh, even out that 50 points of damage, they still only fall unconscious. The only way you die in this game is if someone walks up while you're unconscious and puts a knife through your face or something like that, you know, a coup de grace. This limitation frustrates 5th Age sorcerers who remember casting such spells in the previous age. A good example is the simple charm spell Raceland Majir once used on a Gully Dwarf maiden named Bapu. Because its magic affects the mind of its subject, this once simple spell lies utterly beyond the power of any sorcerer on Kryn today. Spells like the charm mentioned above are not unknown in the world, however. Certain items of magic created in the past age under the orders of high sorcery, still retain their life-related functions. Sorcerers wielding these items can perform magic they could not create on their own. In addition, individuals who have mastered the power of mysticism can wield such life magic quite readily. The Scope of Mysticism The energy of the living spirit powers the forces of mysticism. This magic is created and renewed by processes of life and emotion and faith. To harness the energies living in himself, a mystic must achieve a state of inner harmony and emotional purity. When he has, the powers of mysticism can do wonders. Just as sorcery cannot affect the living, however, mysticism does not influence lifeless matter. No mystic can cause fire to spring from his fingertips or raise a wall of stone from the earth, but mystic magic can have profound effects on all living things. Casting Spells Using sorcery or mysticism requires the utmost concentration and mental effort by the spellcaster. Most adopt hand gestures and words of power or personal mantras to aid this concentration. In game terms, casting a spell is an action just like breaking down a door or picking a lock. The action ability for all attempts at sorcery is reason, while mystic actions require spirit. Before attempting the action, the player figures out his hero's spell difficulty, which depends on the desired effect of the spell as described below. Then he plays a card to attempt the spell action, enjoying a Trump bonus for Moon's cards, sorcery, or hearts, mysticism. Just as there are various types of actions, as described in Chapter 3, wielders of magic encounter different varieties of spells as well. Unresisted spells. In some cases, a sorcerer or mystic will cast a spell without a specific target. For example, a spectromancer, a sorcerer whose magic deals with light, may wish to cause his quarterstaff to glow while he explores a dark cave. Because the staff offers no opposition, the action score associated with the casting depends only on the difficulty of the spell. Of course, cases may arise in which a user of magic doesn't realize his spell faces opposition. Uh, For example, a sorcerer might cast the Above Light spell on an object that was, for some reason, resistant to magic. The Spectromancer believing his spell should work might meet with disappointment when the narrator informs him that it failed. Often a hero or character casts a spell not on an inanimate object, but on a person or creature who is aware of the effort and does not wish to prevent the spell from taking effect. Prime examples of such spells include a mystic's healing magic. When the spell's target is a willing recipient, it is unresisted. Resisted spells. Spells cast At living creatures, a sorcerer's offensive fire spell or a mystic's sleep spell, are considered the equivalent of opposed actions. The unwilling target of a sorcery spell uses perception as his opposition ability to avoid the effects. A target of an unwanted mystic spell uses his presence to oppose it. In rare cases, a narrator might allow a spell's target to resist the magic using another ability score. For example, if a sorcerer magically poisons a hero's glass of ale, the hero may attempt to resist the spell's effects using endurance. Should a hero attempt to cast a resisted spell upon multiple targets at once, he need only overcome the highest opposition ability score in the group, not all of their scores added together. Casting multiple spells. Because the effects of a spell can linger for a while, it is possible for a wielder of magic to have more than one spell in operation at a time. This ability has its limits, however. The act of maintaining a spell over a long duration still requires some mental effort from the caster. In game terms, a hero with an ability code of A in reason or spirit can maintain up to three spells of the appropriate type, sorcery or mystic, at once. Heroes with a B code can keep only one spell in operation at a time. The caster can terminate an existing spell voluntarily anytime he wishes to cast a new one. For example, suppose a mystic with a spirit code of A casts a spell to increase his strength score for 12 hours. In addition, he uses a similar spell to increase his agility. Shortly afterward, he finds himself forced to enter a region of toxic fumes and casts a third spell to enable him to breathe normally. While exploring the poisonous mists, a creature attacks and injures him. If he wishes to use a spell to heal his wounds, he must cancel one of his three existing spells. Designing Spells The saga rules allow heroes to cast any type of spell they want, not just ones from a master spell list. Players whose heroes employ the powers of sorcery and mysticism can decide on the spot exactly the effect that they wish to manifest. The spell's difficulty depends on its strength and general effect. For instance, a spell that throws a small bolt of fire at a single goblin will prove much easier to cast than one that raises a wall of fire before an advancing cadre of goblins. The members of the Last Conclave knew that magic was still present in their world, but for a long time they didn't understand why wizard spells failed. Finally, they realized that the Order's concept of spell memorization had become useless with the departure of the gods magic who first taught wizards of this the system so long ago the priests of old felt equally frustrated at the dawn of the fifth age the gods used to bless spiritual folk with the ability to cast spell specific spells but now the departed deities could not hear the prayers of the faithful but the priestess gold moon like the sorcerers of the last conclave ultimately managed to put aside the old methods and find new way to harness the magic of Kryn. In the fifth age, mystics and sorcerers don't pray for spells or memorize them. They construct them. A wielder of magic can visualize all the layers of a spell, its effect, duration, and so on, and through force of mind or spirit, shape the necessary magical energies into the form he sees. Today, the Citadel of Light and the Academy of Sorcery teach these internal constructionist techniques to the followers of their distinct disciplines. In game terms, a player builds his hero’s spell by electing its various properties, I'm sorry, selecting its various properties from the tables in this section. Each property has a listed difficulty rating. By totaling the difficulties for each aspect of the spell, the player determines the spell's final difficulty in spell points. To succeed at a spellcasting action, the hero must achieve his total as his action score as well, higher if resisted. Of course, the lower the total difficulty score, the easier the spell is for someone to cast. Spellcasters should remember that most magic meets with resistance. Like opposed actions, it can be blocked by the target's abilities such as perception for sorcerer spells or presence, mystic spells. So the caster should direct more spell points towards the casting than the spell's actual required total number of points. A complete spell must have each of the following properties. An invocation time, an effect range, an area effect, a duration, and a spell effect. Step 1. Invocation time. The first and often most important property of every spell is the length of time it takes someone to cast it. Casting any spell requires some amount of invocation time, even if only a moment for a quick hand gesture or the utterance of a single word of power. The longer a sorcerer or mystic takes to invoke a spell, the easier it becomes to cast it correctly, therefore the lower the difficulty rating. Those who try to rush their magic are prone to errors and mishaps. The following chart indicates the difficulty rating in spell points associated with these spells invocation time. So you can see the chart here, invocation time and difficulty. An instantaneous spell costs more points than something that takes a half hour to to cast. and That makes logical sense. While a longer invocation time makes a spell easier to cast, it also gives others a chance to thwart the caster's efforts. If a sorcerer or mystic finds himself forced to take some action such as defending himself from an attack or suffers any injury during the invocation period, the casting process is disrupted. The would-be caster loses half the spell points that would have been required to cast the spell and gains nothing for his efforts. To cast the spell now, he must begin anew. Uh, For a measure of context, the one-minute mark there that's the length of a round in this game. So uh, anything over one round is, you know, an entire combat situation. I mean, 10 rounds is is a huge amount of time. 20 rounds is unheard of. So um, you're pretty much gonna be locking into either your one minute or your instant in your uh, duration. Step two, range. The second aspect casters must consider with every spell is its intended range. Spells required required to function at very long ranges carry a much greater chance of failure and demand more effort. Spell points. For instance, healing a comrade's wound becomes much easier if you can lay your hands upon him than if you must heal him from some distance. And then you can see the range chart here with the uh, difficulty. So, of course, if you can touch the person at personal range, it's only one point. But if you're... (laughs) I mean, you gotta remember, artillery range is like miles away. So you can still heal people at that distance. It's just very difficult. Spells designed to function at personal range require the caster to actually touch the target. This range also applies to spells a hero casts upon himself. Yes, we just see the healers touching themselves all the time. Gets dirty real quick. Step three, duration. The effects of some spells are over almost as soon as they have begun, while others linger for minutes, even an hour after casting. Of course, the longer a caster expects a spell to remain in effect, the more difficult it becomes to cast. The chart below indicates the effect of a spell's duration on its casting difficulty. So we can see spell duration instantaneous is one point. Of course, you know, it it takes just a second. So that would be like an offensive in most cases. But if you wanna, you know, buff up your strength or a friend's armor class or something, you know, in like a a full encounter, then maybe the 15 minutes time frame would work best for you. In previous ages, priests and wizards cast spells known to last beyond the duration listed here. Such spells, however, benefited from the intercession of the three gods of magic or other deities. In the Age of Mortals, even the most potent wielders of magic cannot maintain a spell for more than an hour, though research on this matter continues at the Academy of Sorcery in the Citadel of Light. So there is a duration maximum here. And I think that's really important because another way of thinking about magic in this fifth age, they used to refer to it as wild magic. It is unreliable. Rumors circulate through the halls of the academy and the citadel of ways to cast spells that remain permanently in effect. However, no technique is known to have proven successful. Current methods allow casters to use magic to do a job, but then the energies dissipate again. Step four. Area of effect. The fourth aspect of a spell's design concerns the amount of area its effects cover. Spells designed to affect a single individual pro, uh, prove much easier to cast than those intended to destroy dozens. One of the three tables in this section can help players assign a difficulty rating to this spell property, depending on whether the spell targets individuals, a spatial area, or a period a certain amount of time from now. Group areas of effect. The chart on the next page is appropriate for spells that affect people from an individual to a group. The target uh, targets must remain more or less together, however, and not scattered across an open field. So it is kind of nice to know that you could buff the entire group, with, to use a gaming term, uh, with a spell. So you can see the individual versus the crowd. Place areas of effect. If the caster can better define a spell's area of effect in terms of spatial size, the player should consult the following chart to determine this property's difficulty rating. And so you can see, like, if you want to light up a whole room or flood it with water or something. Temporal areas of effect. Divination spells sometimes look into the future or past in their quest for information. In such cases, the number of hours or weeks a sorcerer has to reach backward or forward for the view dictates the spell's area of effect. Players should take care not to confuse a temporal area of effect with the spell's duration. For example, the table below shows that a spell designed to let a hero see what happened on a given spot an hour ago would have a difficulty rating of 2 points. The same spell used to see the events of a month before would cost 5 points. So you have your area of effect and your difficulty. I think this is a great way to use magic, by the way. Um, Divination, like it's something that as far as like characters and casters I've ever used in the past, it's sort of, uh, you know, like one of those disciplines you never really pay attention to. But if you're coming up onto a battle scene and you need to figure out what happened, this is the perfect way of figuring out exactly what happened Or, or to figure out how someone died or who the murderer was. You could use divination to do that. Um, No, Michael. Spell points derive from the actual ability number, the score, and you times it by itself. That's how many spell points you have. It gets into healing them later on, but you regain them, I believe, one per hour. Or all of them overnight, something like that. From time to time, spells may come along with more unusual areas of effect. In such cases, the narrator or player should use the above chart as guidelines to determine the difficulty. Step 5. Effect The most difficult aspect of a spell to quantify is its effect. Nevertheless, the following tables provide appropriate difficulty ratings for various spell types. Numeric Adjustments When a character intends a spell to cause damage or offer defense against an attack, a player can rate the casting difficulty of its effects fairly easily. Whenever a spell's sole purpose is to adjust either a damage or defense rating in combat, the additional difficulty is dictated by the value of the adjustment either up or down, as indicated below. Spells designed to increase or decrease ability scores can use this chart too. So you can see doing 1 to 2 points of damage only takes 1 spell point, but doing 15 to 20 points of damage is 5 points. Why anyone would do 15 over 20? if it costs the exact same is beyond me, so I don't understand the whole range, you could just say up to two, up to five, up to nine. Because what kind of an asshole is going to say, I only want to do one point of damage. All right, you need to be smacked in the face. In most cases, spells designed to inflict damage on someone are not affected by armor or shields. This is important. (laughs) for both heroes and their enemies. Spells designed to inflict damage on someone are not affected by their armor or shields. Throwing a magical fireball at someone completely ignores their armor. That's huge. Because the only way to, to lower damage you take is by your armor. Thus, if a pyromancer, a sorcerer who specializes in fire spells, hurls a five-point bolt of flame at an enemy, his target suffers five damage points, whether he's buck-naked or wearing full-plate armor. After all, magic works in mysterious ways. And it can't be overpowered because they only have a certain number of points, so they can only do so much. Healing spells. One of the most valuable aspects of mystic magic is its Curative ability. In game terms, this effect takes the form of returning lost cards to a hero's hand or lost endurance points to a character. Remember, characters are NPCs, heroes are PCs. When a hero casts a spell intended to heal someone, the number of cards or endurance points to restore indicates the difficulty rating. After a mystic successfully casts a healing spell, the player of the wounded hero may draw a new card or cards from the fate deck. So you can see healing one card or point is only one point difficulty, but five is five. However, the act of healing has its risks. Should the player of the healed hero happen to draw a Dragon's card, a healing mishap has occurred. The Dragon's card indicates that this spell has proven exceptionally taxing for the mystic. The healer must give up a number of mysticism points equal to the total value of the cards the player just drew to add to his hand of fate. This loss is in addition to the spell points he sacrificed to cast the spell in the first place. If the healer does not have enough mysticism points available to pay for these cards in a mishap, he suffers a number of damage points equal to the surplus card value. That's crazy! Thus, a healer might render himself unconscious by suffering a mishap while attempting to heal a seriously wounded individual for example that's awesome say gold moon uses a spell action to restore one card of damage to the injured Kender belladonna she must expend mysticism points equal to the spell's difficulty for this example say the total difficulty was 10 points after spending the points gold moon's player uses a high enough card to allow the action to succeed however belladonna's player draws the seven of dragons from the top of the fate deck Goldmoon then must expend an additional 7 mysticism points to account for the extra fatigue associated with the healing magic in a mishap. If at the time the mystic has only 4 spell points left, she would suffer 3 damage points which her player would pay out from his hand of fate. This additional mishap cost applies even to spells intended to cure oneself. Conditions that have not actually caused a victim to lose cards, such as a malady caused by a creature's special attack, carries no risk of mishap. So it's only in healing, not like curing disease or something. Other Spell Effects If the spell effect does not seem as easily defined as the above examples, the narrator signs it a difficulty rating based on his assessment of the spell's desired outcome. Most such magics are cast with Injurious or otherwise negative purposes. The table below lists some general degrees of spell effects along with their associated numeric adjustments. The nature of the spell effect and the difficulty point so irritating, troublesome, hindering, and uh, Obviously, the above terms are vague and subject to some interpretation. With a little experience, however, the narrator can learn to make these judgment calls easily. However, if no obvious difficulty level presents itself, the narrator can simply assign a spell effect to a difficulty of two or three points and get on with play. If the effects category doesn't seem to apply to a spell in question, just assign the property a minimum difficulty rating of one point. Yeah, this is rough because anything that's like damaging them Well, that's five, you know, like, if you're only doing one point of damage to them, then that's only one point, so. Sample spells. The following two examples illustrate the process by which a wielder of magic casts a spell. The first typifies the use of an unresisted spell, an unopposed action. The second sample shows how to construct a spell to cast upon a resisting target. Just as warriors have favorite weapons, most sorcerers and mystics have preferred spells too. Those playing magic-using heroes should keep copies of the spells they create to speed play. Bilam's Bifrost Bridge A force of draconians pursuing a group of heroes led by the young sorcerer Bilam. The heroes come to a great fissure, which they must cross in order to escape. Bilam, skilled in the ability to... Manipulate Stone furiously develops a magical solution, to create a crystal bridge spanning the chasm. Time is of the essence, so Bilim can afford to spend only one minute casting the spell, imparting a difficulty of 4. He wants to create the bridge right before him, melee range, difficulty of 2, and make it about the size of a large room, difficulty of 3. The bridge effects must last long enough for all the heroes to cross safely, but not so long that the Draconians could use it. Villain's player calls for a 1 minute duration, difficulty of 2. Lastly, the narrator decides that the general spell effect has already been accounted for by the area of effect requirement. He assigns the category the minimum difficulty of 1. The spell's total difficulty factor is invocation, 1 minute, 4, range, melee, 2, area, larger room, 3, duration, 1 minute, 2, spell effect, minimum, 1, total difficulty, 12. To successfully cast this unresisted spell, Bilam must attempt a Reason action with a difficulty rating of 12. As the spell faces no opposition, Bilam's player knows exactly what action score he needs to make his spell take effect. Palin's Pyre The following spell has one of the first that Palin Majir cast after he had begun to understand the use of primordial magic. While traveling south from Solace to the Tower of High Sorcery at Wayrith, Palin fell under attack by a troop of goblins. Unable to bargain with them, the wizard was forced to risk using the fire magic he did not fully understand in order to escape. Palin had to act fast, so he relied on an instantaneous invocation time, difficulty of 5. His targets had drawn close, melee range, difficulty of 2, but he had many to deal with, 10 targets, difficulty of 4. As with most combat spells, its duration was instantaneous, difficulty of 1. Lastly, Palin sought to deliver a fair amount of damage to his targets, 6 damage points, difficulty of 3. Such an injury seems unlikely to actually kill the goblins, something the good-hearted Palin hoped to avoid, but almost certainly would drive them off. The final difficulty of Palin's spell is invocation instant 5, range melee 2, area 10 men 4, duration instant 1, spell effects plus 6 damage points 3, total difficulty of 15. This fire spell presents a casting challenge. It requires a sorcerer to do a little more than snap his fingers, hence the short invocation time. Yet, it inflicts significant damage on a large number of targets. The real difficulty lies in the fact that the goblins can attempt to block this resisted spell with their intellect scores of 3. Intellect being the monster's related ability appropriate to the perception actions. Luckily, only the highest opposition score in the target group applies to the spell's difficulty, not the score of every member of the group. Therefore, to cast this successfully, Palin should expend 18 sorcery points and aim for that number as his action score as well. So I think it's important to to reinforce this idea that even if you're casting a spell, the spell is going to reduce your spell points, but you still have to perform the action using your hand of fate and discarding a card, and you still have to go over the number of points that you just expended. It's important to note that. Spell points. Technically, every living creature has a small pool of magical energy to draw from, the primordial magic of Crin, sorcery, and the energy of life, mysticism. However, those without training in either of these magical arts cannot actually make use of it. The fifth age game reflects this energy using the concept of spell points. As stated earlier, there are two types of spell points, sorcery points and mysticism points. A spellcaster's spell point total equals the square of his reason or spirit score, whichever is appropriate. Players can write in their hero's spell point totals in the empty boxes next to the appropriate ability on the hero sheet. The following table indicates the points provided by a given ability score. So you can either do the math yourself or just look at this chart here and it tells you if you have a 5, then you got 25 spell points. For characters and creatures with scores above 9, The progression on this chart continues, thus the number of sorcery points for a creature with a reason score of 15 equals 15 times 15, or 225 points. Clearly, very intelligent creatures like dragons can draw from immense magical reserves. Expending Spell Points As heroes cast spells, they reduce the number of spell points available to them. The number of points it costs to cast a given spell is equal to the spell's difficulty rating as described earlier. However, the opposition value of a resisting spell target is not included in the basic cost of the spell. To allow for resistance, a spellcaster should estimate how many points of opposition this spell faces and allot as many extra spell points as he feels necessary. So in this particular case, you can actually use spell points in addition to your hand of fate in order to overcome the opposition. So, if they have a really high resistance, just throw in some extra spell points and you can probably overcome it. Regaining spell points. Using up all one's spell points means the mystic or sorcerer has exhausted his mental or spiritual reserve. An individual can channel, shape, and direct only so much magical energy in one day. At this point, he can cast no further spells until he has earned back a measure of his lost points. He can regain lost points at a flat rate of one sorcery and or one mysticism point per hour. If the spellcaster has access to both mystic and sorceress magic, he can regain both at once. The hero regains points at the same rate whether he spends this time uh, resting or fighting. Wow, that actually... To to get a dragon who has like 225 spell points, (laughs) that's 225 hours before they can recharge. That's crazy. Heroes versus magic. Just as most heroes have spellcasting allies, they also may find themselves attacked by spellcasting enemies. Whether these foes are dragons, mad wizards, or other adventurers facing offensive magic can prove a crisis. Monsters and other characters use magic the same way that heroes do. However, just as these figures do not attempt combat actions, they also do not attempt formal spell actions. In keeping with the primacy of the hero in the game, the saga rules reverse the game mechanics governing spellcasting by a non-hero. When any non-hero launches a spell at a hero, the casting is reflected in the hero's attempts to avoid its effects. This action is resolved as follows. Avoid a spell. Difficulty? Average, 8. Action ability, perception or presence. Opposition ability, reason or spirit. Comments. A hero uses perception as the action ability to avoid a sorceress spell and presence to resist mysticism. The difficulty may vary depending on the severity of the spell effect. Failure indicates that the spell has had its full effect, while success allows the hero to escape unscathed. Mishap. Not only has the spell taken effect on the hero, it also produces some unexpected and detrimental effect. For example, a blind spell might have knocked the hero off his feet in addition to blinding him. Schools of Sorcery The Academy's instructors divide the magic of sorcery into distinct fields known as schools. Spells belonging to the same school have similar properties. All the spells in the School of Transmutation, for example, deal with the use of magic to change one type of matter into another. The 11 schools do not remain wholly distinct from each other, however. Some spells do overlap. For example, a sorcerer could create a magical light either with spectromancy or through the auspices of the enchantment school. The challenge of harnessing the sorceress magic makes it impossible for an individual to master more than a few of these branches. Anyone with the Reason Code of A is assumed to have mastered three schools of magic. Those with a B code can wield spells from a single school. A player selects the schools familiar to his sorcerer during hero creation. Once selected, they may not be changed. Players might find it advantageous to select complementary schools, so they produce unique effects from these schools' combined properties. For instance, a spell that combines the schools of pyromancy, fire, and aromancy, air, could produce a wall of smoke in an effect not otherwise available to a sorcerer. Or it could be like a really great microwave, right? Just make your dinner really quick. The schools of magic and their characteristics are described below. Aromancy. The school of Aromancy, encompassing the spells of elemental air, can create anything from a breeze to a gale. Aromancers might shroud their enemies in clouds of choking vapor, call up cloaking patches of dense fog, fly above the trees, or encase themselves in a bubble of air to travel underwater. Aromancy also allows a sorcerer to affect the weather, at least to a limited extent. Such a dramatic action, however, proves very difficult because of its broad scale. Only the most powerful spellcatchers can wield most weather magic. Cryomancy. Some sorcerers consider cryomancy nothing but a hybrid of aeromancy and hydromancy, water magic. However, such contenders cannot def- deny the fact that a skilled cryomancer can accomplish feats no aeromancer or hydromancer could. He can manifest great cold and call into being large quantities of ice. The spells of cryomancy can create walls of ice, freeze rivers solid enough even in the heart of summer, and sear enemies with a wicked frostbite that stops them dead in their tracks. You can see in these descriptions how this also was the same system that they applied to a uh, Marvel superheroes game because if you're a, you know, an X-Man for example, you just choose one of these schools of magic and that's your superpower. Divination. Divination is one of the most widely practiced forms of magic on Kryn. Though th- through the use of primordial magic, a diviner attempts to gain information about the world around him. A spell of divination might allow him to see a magical aura or to note the presence of a trap in an otherwise harmless-looking hallway. It even offers glimpses into the past and future. The trick of divination, uh, the trick to divination magic, is knowing what to ask and when to ask it. Defining spells are not flawless, of course, and uh, divining, and they do not make a sorceress effectively omniscient. Because of sorcery's natural limitations, divination does not let a hero read another's mind. In addition, while a diviner might be able to see events of the past with great clarity, his visions of the future remain subject to change. They may not even come to pass at all. Indeed, many sages say that the very act of observing the future changes it. Of course, we saw that in Star Wars. Electromancy. Few natural forces prove more powerful or widespread than electricity. From the devastating potential of a lightning strike to the all-pervasive sting of a static spark, most people come into contact with the forces of electromancy every day. A skilled electromancer can unleash streams of lightning from his fingers to burn or terrify his enemies. Or he can summon a faint blue aura to charge or light <laughs> to light his way in the night. Just a glowing person walking around. Enchantment. The magic of enchantment can imbue common objects with sorcerous energy. Heroes may well encounter a variety of enchantments during their adventures. Examples include an enchanted weapon offering a bonus to its damage rating, or an enchanted shield or suit of armor provides a bonus to its defensive rating. See, this is something that You know, smart players will definitely be picking up the enchantment (laughs) so that they can add bonuses to their armor and stuff. Enchantments can take many forms, however. Sorcerers could not limit them to combat, should not limit them to combat. A clever enchanter might use his power to cause the crystal on the end of his walking stick to glow. Oh, we've never seen that before. Effectively eliminating any need for a torture lantern. Of course, at present, an enchanted item retains its magic for only as long as the spell's duration allows. Geomancy. Just as sorcerers can command the air above, so too can they make the earth below do their bidding. Geomancers are noted for their ability to draw great stone walls from the earth or cause the ground to turn into quicksand and uh, beneath their feet of their enemies. A geomancer's power can affect stone, earth, metals, and even gems and other crystals. No aspect of this geological world, even alloys such as steel, can resist this sorcerer's will. Hydromancy. The ability to manipulate all the life-giving waters of the world appears most frequently within coastal communities, although hydromancy is not unknown in other regions. More than one tribe of desert barbarians exists only because one of its members can draw water from the arid ground. Hydromancers can prove quite valuable during ocean voyages, as their powers can cause swift currents to run beneath a ship, hastening it along its route. This reminds me of Avatar, actually. You guys ever watch that? Um, The Last Airbender? It's great. However, players should note that a hydromancer's power affects only water in its liquid state. This sorcerer can manipulate ice or steam only in an extremely limited fashion, even though both are forms of water. Something about the solid or vapor states makes this substance proof against the power of hydromancy. Of course, as ice melts or steam condenses, it becomes the tool of the hydromancer again. Pyromancy. Among the most ancient of mankind's tools is that of fire. For millennia it has heated homes and driven away the beasts of the night. Is it any wonder that the magic of fire holds a a particular fascination to sorcerers? The spell called Palin's Pyre, presented earlier in this chapter, exemplifies just some of the great potential of pyromancy. The power of pyromancer, pyromancers can now uh, makes them among the flashiest of Ancelon's sorcerers. Indeed, more than one bard has described them as living, breathing fireworks shows. No oh boy, spectromancy, lighting, and I'm sorry, light and color have always fascinated mankind. As such, the school of spectromancy numbers among these most commonly studied by young sorcerers. A spectromancer can create light, alter the color of existing radiances, and otherwise manipulate luminescences. In addition to simply creating or extinguishing sources of illumination, knowledge of spectromancy permits sorcerers to create images and illusions, While these phantasms remain nothing more than tricks of light and shadow, they can easily fool the unsuspecting. Some of the most common spells of illusion are those of invisibility. Summoning. Through the magic of summoning, a sorcerer can transport himself or others across distances by actually folding space. Those who have mastered such powers provide great service to adventurers and other traveling folk. Gee, that's someone healing themselves too much. Of course, transporting a large number of people any great distance can prove such an exhausting, time-consuming, and difficult ordeal that few summoners embrace the challenge frequently. Sorcerers can combine the art of summoning with those of other schools to draw power, magical creatures, uh, to draw powerful magical creatures into the world from various elemental planes of the universe. Whoa. For example, a character gifted with knowledge of both pyromancy and summoning might draw a living creature of fire see chapter six, into the world from the elemental plane of fire. Whoa! Whoa! Transmutation. The spells of transmutation involve magically manipulating unliving matter at its most basic level. While those with limited knowledge of this power can alter the structure of matter in only minor ways, a master transmuter can totally change the nature of an object. A sorcerer with a reason code of B, who opts to study transmutation, can induce only limited types of changes. He might transform one type of metal into another, for example, but he cannot change it into stone or glass. A true master of transmutation, one with a, a reason code, can alter the very nature of matter to some extent. The exact limit of his ability depends on which of the sorcerer's schools he had studied. For instance, One skilled in aromancy, geomancy, and transmutation could turn a stone wall, something geomancy affects into a cloud of fog, an aspect of aromancy. Changes made with transmutation remain impermanent, however. Every spell must include a duration. When these durations lapse, the transmutation reverses itself. Mystic spheres. The study and practice of mysticism requires a great deal of dedication, and devotion. Those who would master it must look deep inside of themselves, finding and tapping the energies that glow within them. As with sorcery, the magic of mysticism fits its various categories. Goldmoon and the other mystics of the Citadel of Light refer to these divisions as spheres, a holdover from the clerical magic of its previous ages. A hero or other character with a spirit coat of B can draw upon the magic of but a single sphere, More powerful mystics, those with an ability code of A in spirit, may tap into three of these spheres. In both cases, the player selects the spheres at the time of hero creation and cannot change it afterward. As with sorcery, players can select complementary spheres whose combined magical properties can produce unique effects. The spheres of mystic magic and their properties are described below. Animism those with access to the powers of animism can commune with any living thing. By harnessing these forces, animists can communicate with and control the beasts and plants of the world. The animist can affect only natural creatures and plants, not those with magical powers. In addition, creatures with reason scores of more than two are immune to the magic of the sphere. Some people call animists druids, a term that actually describes the priest of nature from previous ages. While the name is not strictly accurate, the source of Druidic power was not mystical, so many people misuse the term that most folk have no idea of its erroneous roots. Alteration. Heroes who have mastered the art of alteration can physically transform their bodies into the forms of other creatures. For example, an alter could assume the shape of another individual, an animal such as a horse or even a creature like a wyvern. uh, In addition, alters can change the shape of someone else through casting alteration spells on another, uh, though casting alteration spells on another is harder than casting on oneself due to the increased range. When the mystic assumes his new shape or alters another, he must determine the new figure's physical ability scores. The total number of points assigned to the new form's strength, endurance, agility, and dexterity must equal the total of the altered individual's own scores. Thus, a hero with a score of 7 for each physical ability, a total of 28 points, should become a creature with scores of 5, 6, 8, and 9, also totaling 28. It's possible, though difficult, for a mystic to alter himself or another into a significantly larger or smaller creature. For every point the total of the figure's new physical score differs from his original total, either greater or less, the spell's difficulty rating goes up one point. Thus. To alter a 28-point hero above into a creature with physical numbers totaling 38 would add 10 points to this spell action's difficulty, and hence its cost in mystic points. An individual's mental ability scores remains unchanged by any alteration. The same is true of his ability codes, although the nature of the new form may prevent him from using certain weapons or wearing armor. Once a change has taken place, it remains in effect for the duration of the spell, as selected by the mystic, or until the caster opts to cancel it. If the altered individual dies or falls unconscious, he reverts to his true form. An altered individual can uh, retain his new shape, even during sleep. However, a mystic who altered himself cannot maintain his new form, during magically induced slumber, as this effect blocks his concentration, causing him to assume his true form. Only mystics with an ability code of A in spirit have skill enough to assume the shape of a specific creature. Thus, a hero with a code of B could become an elf, while a mystic with a code of A could alter himself to resemble a specific elf, and even pass for that person under close scrutiny. Of course, As the mind of the altered individual remains unchanged, others can oft spot such impostors through conversation. Channeling Through sheer will, a mystic who has studied the art of channeling can use the magical energies within him to adjust his or another's physical ability scores. Thus, a channeler could make himself tremendously strong or as nimble as a great cat. Indeed, the art of channeling can even increase a hero's ability scores beyond the normal limit of 9, or decrease an enemy's score. However, channeling cannot affect someone's ability codes. If a mystic wishes to channel energy to adjust more than one physical ability score, he must weave a separate spell for each ability. Thus, a hero could not use a single spell to increase his strength and agility. This rule simply reflects the fact that the caster must direct energy in a particular fashion to attain each specific result. Healing Among the most potent of the mystic's arts is the ability to heal wounds, cure disease, and otherwise combat the ills of the world. This healing art can save lives, but it does have its perils. Any attempts to heal might bring about a mishap which could exhaust or even injure the mystic. See the Designing Spells section of this chapter for more on the healing mishap. Players should also note that healers can never use this sphere of magic to inflict harm. Actually causing physical damage with mysticism is an aspect of necromancy. Is that Goldman? Meditation. The sphere of meditation allows a hero to alter his or another's mental ability scores. In almost every way, the work of meditators mirrors that of channelers, including the use of a single spell to adjust each separate score. One important factor to remember about the art of meditation is that a mystic cannot use it to affect his or another's number of spell points. Using meditation to increase or decrease a reason or spirit score does not change the individual's total number of available spell points. Such increases do make it easier to cast spells, of course. A higher score in the spellcasting action ability improves the spellcaster's chance chance of reaching his required action score. As with channeling, mastery of of meditation can allow a hero to increase a mental ability score beyond 9 points, but cannot affect a hero's or character's ability codes. Mentalism Among the most interesting aspects of mysticism taught at the Citadel of Light is the skill of mentalism, or, as many people call it, telepathy. A hero skilled in mentalism can project his own thoughts into the minds of others. In addition, he may attempt to read the thoughts and memories of another, often learning valuable unspoken facts. Those of the spirit code of B can read and send thoughts but cannot attempt to change memories, induce hallucinations, or subjugate another's will. These latter powers are reserved for true masters of this mystical art, those with a coat of A. Necromancy. The mere utterance of the word necromancy sends shivers down the spine of the bravest warrior. If there is a forbidden art in the world of Kryn, it is this blackest of black magics. Black, 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 number one. Mystics who have mastered the sphere of necromancy deal in the very essence of life and death. They can wound their enemies, sap their vital energies, or cause them to simply drop dead. By the same token, they can infuse a corpse with a sort of pseudo-life, forcing it to rise as a zombie. Obviously, Goldmoon and her followers never practice this dark art. Only heroes who have special permission from the narrator, such as the Skull Knights of Takesis, can opt to study necromancy. Sensitivity. The Sphere of Sensitivity gives mystics powers similar to the divination abilities of sorcerers. It allows a hero to read the spiritual auras that surround living creatures. Sensitivity can help a mystic gain information about an individual's nature and demeanor, determine whether someone is acting under the influence of a spell, and otherwise analyze the nature of a creature. Those with the spirit code of B derive this knowledge by actually observing the creature, while those with the code of A can sense this information in the afterglow left by an individual's passing or an object he once possessed. While the end result of sensitivity sometimes overlaps that of mentalism, the two spheres remain functionally different. Sensitivity might reveal that a person felt angry and aggressive. However, it would not allow the mystic to see into the target's thoughts or uh, To determine the reason for these emotions, as mentalism could. Conversely, mentalism cannot help a hero sense things like the presence of spell power, altered forms and the like, the purview of sensitivity. Spiritualism Although somewhat less scorned than necromancy, the sphere of spiritualism resembles it greatly. Unlike the dark art, which deals with the corporeal dead, spiritualism allows a mystic to commune with the dead and create incorporeal, incorporeal undead. Those with the spirit code of B can use this power to deal with existing undead and commune with the spirits of the dead. When used by a mystic with the spirit code of A, magic of the sort can call back the spirits of the dead and create ghosts, wraiths, and other spectral insubstantial undead. It is important to keep in mind the differences between necromancy and spiritualism. While both deal with the undead, the former magic focuses only on corporeal creatures like zombies and ghouls, all of which falls outside the sphere of spiritualism. Items of Magic So far, this chapter has discussed magic as wielded by spellcasters as well as techniques for heroes to resist the effects of hostile spells directed at them. However, non-spellcasters also have the ability to wield the arcane energies of Kryn using items of magic. Magical items from earlier ages retain their potency even in the absence of the gods. After all, the members of the Pantheon did not remove their blessings from holy items like true dragon lances or blessed swords before they departed. In addition, Items of magic hold some of the last vestiges of the old powers of the High Sorcery left in Kryn. Just like creatures who retain their pre-existing inherent magic in the Fifth Age, so do items of magic remain arcane and powerful, despite some understandable functional failure in the immediate aftermath of the Chaos War. Such objects, classified in Chapter 2 as trinkets, treasures, and artifacts, have become more valuable than ever, as the gods can no longer bestow new holy articles. In addition, 5th Age Sorcerers currently find it impossible to enchant items permanently due to the limit on enchantment spell durations. Alright, what are you guys saying here? Um, Albert Witch, I don't know if I welcome you to the live stream. Good to see you. Thanks for joining live. Uh, After that, you can recover your weapons that may have been in the stone. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> I am talking to Goldman specifically. <laughs> She's got a caster. <laughs> Arms and armor. Throughout the world are scattered various magical weapons, suits of armor, and shields. These range from slightly enchanted daggers that can provide a mild advantage in combat to mighty artifacts like the great dragon lances themselves. Each of these articles is unique with its own powers, history, or legend. Many have names such as Sturm Brightblade's family sword, the Brightblade, and Tassiloff Burfoot's special dagger, Rabbit Slayer. All magical weapons or armor have a numeric bonus. This modifier applies to both the action card a player discards while his his hero uses it and the damage or defense rating of the item itself. Thus, if a magical suit of armor bears a minus two bonus, it will add two more points to an action card played to resist an attack and stop two damage points more than normal armor of the same type. Obviously, the more power a holy weapon or piece of magical armor has, the more successful its wielder will enjoy in battle, and thus, the greater the fame of the item. Therefore, the people of Ancelon generally rate magical weapons and armor by the caliber of their associated legends and stories. Items of Distinction An item of distinction, a trinket, enjoys only a minor reputation. Its fame probably is spread no further than one city or similar region. Such an item gives its owner a plus or minus two bonus when used in combat. Thus, a long longsword of distinction would have a plus nine damage rating instead of the plus seven normally associated with such a weapon. See the arms and armor chart in Appendix 2. Items of Renown. Items of Renown quite well known and powerful trinkets are often associated with minor heroes. Such items generally prove familiar to most of the people in a specific realm. These objects carry a plus or minus four bonus. Therefore, Chainmail of Renown offers a defense rating of minus seven, while a Dagger of Renown has a damage rating of plus six. Items of Fame. An item of Fame is so well known, its reputation is spread throughout several realms or among all members of a given race. Anyone using a treasure of this type is entitled to a bonus of plus or minus six. A good example of such an item is the axe wielded by the dwarf prophet Severus Stonehand in reclaiming the city of Thorbarden just a few years ago. This weapon, called Avenger, is known to all of Ancelon's dwarves. Some have even written songs recounting Stonehand's remarkable battles against the plague-ridden Zakar dwarves. In combat, this battle-axe of fame has a damage rating of plus twelve instead of an axe's normal plus six items of glory. Amongst the rarest magical treasures are items of glory, generally known to the inhabitants of an entire continent. All in Ancelon will know a weapon of glory when they see it employed. The defense rating of shields or armors of glory is eight points higher than the normal for the item. Thus, a suit of chain mail of glory would have a defense rating of minus 11, the Dwarven Hammer of Keras, or of similar enchantment, has a damage rating of plus 17. <laughs> That's insane. Items of legend, 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 you actually hear echoes whenever you call these items out. The most powerful of magical items on Kryn are items of legend. Very few in number, but known on site by nearly everyone on the planet. Examples of such artifacts include the mighty Dragon Lances, so instrumental in the outcome of the War of the Lands, and the sword and shield used by the Great Huma Dragonbane in his battle with the Dark Queen. A legendary weapon offers a bonus of plus or minus 10 points to its damage rating. With a similar improvement applied to the defense rating of such armor or shields, thus the broadsword wielded by Huma would have a damage rating of plus 16, while the plate armor of the Great Knight would provide a defense rating of minus 15. Special Abilities In some cases, a magical weapon, enchanted suit of armor, or mystical shield has other powers besides an increased damage or defense rating. Narrators should stretch their imagination to make each magic item they introduce into a campaign unique. Adding a special ability or two is an ideal start. Consider these examples. Dragon Lances. The mightiest weapons against dragons are also the most famous and deadliest artifacts known on Kryn. Normal Dragonlance come in two varieties, lesser and greater. A third type remains in Ancelon only in lore. The special abilities of these weapons of legend increases their powers in combat against dragons, their intended foes. Lesser Dragonlance. This legendary artifact with a damage rating of plus 16, a base of plus 6, and a plus 10 enchantment is considered a heavy weapon, intended for use by foot soldiers. If a hero uses it against a dragon, he doubles its damage rating and the bonus it gives the attack action card, for a damage rating of 32 plus 32. Wow! Greater dragon lance, larger than the footman's lance described above, a greater dragon lance has a damage rating of plus 19, derived from its bonus of plus 10 and its base of plus 9. Mounted lances rank three point higher than normal lances. This weapon is designed for a mounted dragon rider. It cannot be employed by someone on foot against a dragon. The weapon's damage rating doubles to plus 38. All right, could you use a greater dragon lance if, what if, what if Sturm was piggybacking on Karaman? Could he use a greater dragon lance? (laughs) True dragon lance. The only weapon more powerful than those above is a true dragon lance. According to legend, such a weapon, either lesser or greater, must be forged by a smith bearing the legendary silver arm of Aragoth and using the hammer of Karas. As true dragon lances require the blessing of Paladine, none may, be in the, none may be forged in the Fifth Age. The last true dragon lances were believed lost in the Battle of the Rift at the close of the Chaos War. Such a weapon has double the normal bonus associated with the type of dragon lance. Woof. The Brightblade, a weapon of glory forged long ago by Dwarven smiths, the Brightblade may be some 30 centuries old. This great sword bears a total damage rating of plus 17. Only those of noble heart can wield this weapon. Its blade will shatter if used by one of dark virtue. Talk about a way to screw over everyone on Kryn. Just have a bad guy smack a stump with the sword and just shatter it. The special runes that mark the Brightblade may... Make any card played for a presence action trump. A hero also can command the sword to radiate light that illuminates a 50 foot radius. Lastly, the bright blade glows with an aura of magical protection that provides the wielder with a defense rating of minus three. As this defense supple- uh, supplements that provided by the hero's armor, a champion with chainmail and the bright blade has a total defense of minus six. Sturm Bright Blade received the sword. ...of his Salamnic Knight father in the years before the War of the Lance. Though Sturm died before bequeathing it to his own son, his Shade offered it to steal Brightblade just before he took the Blood Oath of the Dark Knights. The sword was laid with steel in the Tomb of the Last Heroes. In case anyone wants to go steal it, that is. (laughs) Shield of Huma. The Shield of Huma, a horse... (laughs) A horse shield of glory, has a defense rating of minus 12. Anyone using it to defend himself from Dragon Breath may add its defense rating to the value of the card he plays to avoid the attack. Should the hero suffer injury from the Dragon Breath, the shield's magic halves the number of potential damage points he accrues. Other items of magic? Of course, the magical items come in many shapes and sizes other than weapons, armors, and shields. Stories abound of magical rings, wands that can hurl lightning bolts, pendants that let their wearer vanish from sight, and so on. Using other magical items. Many magical items, such as the arms and armor described earlier, function automatically when heroes pick them up. Others require activation, as decided by the narrator, which calls for an action. Use a magical item, difficulty, easy 4, action ability, reason or spirit, opposition ability, perception or presence. Commons. Using an item of magic resembles the casting of a spell. The hero usually must speak and gesture to activate the magic. Unlike spellcasting, however, the hero makes no adjustment to the difficulty for the effect's range, area of effect, duration, or result. The action ability is generally reason if the effect is sorcerous and spirit for mystic effects. An opposition ability applies only when the hero directs the item's effect at a resisting individual. A target resists most sorcerous effects with perception and most mystical effects with presence. Mishap varies according to the particular item's magical effect. When a character uses an item of magic against a hero, the hero can attempt the following action. Resist a magical item's effect. Difficulty average 8, action ability, perception or presence, opposition ability, reason or spirit. Comments. Resisting a magical effect from an item is the same as resisting a spell. The action ability is usually perception to resist a sorceress effect. Presence against a mystical effect. The opposition ability usually needed is the item user's reason or spirit as appropriate to the magical effect. Mishap varies according to the particular item's magical effect. Sample Items of Magic A narrator can place the following examples of magic items in his campaign or use them as models to create new items of his own. Dalimar's Golden Ring of Healing The magical circle of braided gold that belonged to the great fourth age wizard Dalimar the Dark has the power to restore one card to the hand of a wounded practitioner of sorcery. This treasure, like many similar rings created by the Conclave of Wizards long ago, has the power to heal its wearer up to once per day. Should a sorcerer wearing this ring suffer a fatal wound, the item automatically restores one card to his hand. However, after doing so, it is no longer functions at all for that wearer. If passed on to another wielder of sorcery, it returns to normal. So it has like a list inside of it of all the different heroes it's used like by dna or something so like if i gave the ring to palin and palin gave it back to me could i then use it again or because i once used it after having given it away you know what i mean it's it's ridiculous Or, or the ring is just like dude i know you're funk your ring your finger stinks i know you This ring, and others like it, was crafted by the Orders of High Sorcery for use by wizards. The dark elf mage Dalimar used it to survive the deadly attack of his former lover, Kitiara. First of all, Kitiara was many a man's former lover, so that feels like they were exclusive or something. No, I don't think so, Tim. Thunderstaff. The plainsmen of what is now Duntolik created the magical Thunderstaff long ago. Rumors claim that the barbarians harvested this treasure's six-foot length of dark hardwood from the heart of a tree that was struck by the uh, struck by the lightning breath of a blue dragon. If used in combat, the thunderstaff acts as a quarterstaff with a damage rating of plus two. However, it is not truly intended for such use and will shatter if a mishap results when someone wields it against a foe. The true power of the thunderstaff appears only when the clouds of a great centaur in Duntullet. Of a great storm roll in during a thunderstorm the holder of the thunderstaff may call down strokes of lightning at the rate of one per minute upon a desired target target each such strike inflicts damage points equal to the wielder's total spirit plus presence scores wow while magical armor offers protection against such attacks normal armor does not the owners of the thunderstaff receives a beneficial side effect as well Any lightning or electricity-based attack directed at someone holding this magical staff inflicts only half its normal damage. Smoke Berries In the Fifth Age, the simple magical smoke berries remain a favorite among young apprentices of the magical arts. These trinkets, which resemble large blueberries, are easy to create and can work all sorts of mischief. A sorcerer creates a smoke berry by casting an enchantment spell on a clay marble. If thrown against a solid object, the berry breaks, spilling out a great cloud of blue-gray smoke that fills an area some 25 feet in diameter. This smoke reduces visibility to no more than a yard. On a calm day, the smoke takes between two and three minutes to dissipate. A bit of wind, however, can whisk the clouds away in no more than a minute. Anyone can use a smoke berry once it's made. However, a sorcerer wielding one gains a special benefit. He can drop the berry, but delay the explosion as desired Um, a a desired amount of time if he makes a successful action to use this magical item. See the previous page. A common variation on this item is the dreaded stink berry. Although indistinguishable from a smoke berry, this trinket produces putrid clouds that require anyone breathing in to succeed in an easy endurance action or begin to gag and retch. A hero so afflicted finds any action he attempts one degree more difficult than normal until the smelly clouds (laughs) fully dissipate. <laughs> Whoa, we're at Chapter six. All right. We did it, people. We made it to the beast area, I think. Chapter six. Oh boy. Oh boy, I'm gonna have to have a rock fall on Chris's character's head. It's happening. What letter is that? A U. Up from the rift came a fire. Came fire dragons, made in mockery of real dragons. The fire dragons were formed of magma, magma. Their scales obsidian. Their wings and manes flame. Their eyes blazing ember. They belched noxious gases from the bowels of the world. Sparks flew from their wings, setting ablaze anything over which they flew. The knights stared at these monsters in despair. The battle of the rift begins. Dragons of summer flame. I really wish they could have made the trilogy out of that. It would have negated this entire game system, because the whole purpose of the trilogy was to lose magic and gain it back, but still, it would have been nice. The world of Kryn remains known as much for the creatures that inhabit it as for the heroes who battle them. Ancelon's most famous beasts include the vile goblin races, the foul draconians, and the incredibly powerful dragons themselves. This chapter outlines the races that at various times can fall under the category of creature. Creatures include animals, non-human races, dread monsters, undead figures, dragons and draconians. Even groups such as elves, kendra, and human can be treated as creatures when they oppose the aims of the heroes. So for this one, I'm going to read the the intro and stuff. I'm not going to go I'm not going to read each of the stats. I'll just let you see them as I scroll past them. I don't want this to be a uh... You know, a ridiculous experience. Creature abilities. The various creatures of Ancelon have only four ratings. Physique, coordination, intellect, and essence. These correspond to a hero's four related abilities. So coordination is agility and dexterity. Physique is endurance and strength. Intellect is reason and spirit. And essence is spirit and presence. When an action description mandates the use of an ability as the action or a po- opposition ability, a player should simply resolve the action using the appropriate rating. Thus, if an action calls for the use of a strength, the creature uses its physique rating instead. As a rule, the same numeric scale used for a hero's scores 1 to 9 applies to these ratings. However, various inhuman creatures, such as ogres, surpass certain human scores. Expanding Creature Details From time to time, a narrator may want to expand a creature's ratings and determine all eight of its ability scores. Perhaps the creature has become an important character in an adventure and deserves greater detail. In such cases, the narrator can use the creature's four related ability ratings as an initial guideline. If a creature has a physique score of 10, both its strength and endurance scores become 10 as well. The creature may deviate from these values as long as the average of the two ability scores equals 10. When assigning ability codes, the narrator should assume that all creatures have a code of C in all abilities. If there is a special reason for a particular creature to have a different code, perhaps a creature must wear a certain weight of armor or can cast mystic spells, the narrator can make any changes that common sense requires. Of course, a particular ability code can never give a creature a power or skill prohibited by his very nature. No matter what strength code one assigns to a unicorn, for example, it still won't be able to use a longsword in combat. First of all, <laughs> okay, I'm not even gonna bother. The bestiary. There's actually Fifth Age came out with a um, a manual called the bestiary, and it is it's just illustrations and like watercolor. Um, for each of the creatures. It's wonder- It's all told through the narrative of Caramon's uh, perspective, and it's great. If you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. All creatures. This section offers information about and illustrates illustrations of some of Ancelon's most common or fascinating species, as well as explanations of their special abilities. The creatures are grouped according to general families, hostile non-humans, animals, the lost folk, special mounts, monsters, the undead, and hero races. Narrators can use them as either friends or foes to the heroes. This chapter is by no means exhaustive. Narrators should feel free to create new and unique creatures to challenge players. Dragons and Draconians, two of the most important types of creatures on Kryn, are dealt with in their own section at the end of this chapter. Using the Charts. The creature charts that follow present game details in a condensed, easy to reference form. The information they describe there describes the adult of each species. Narrators may wish to modify some of the specifics based on maturity or subspecies. Each entry includes the following data Creature name, the name by which the creature is most commonly known appears first on the creature's chart. Some species have different names in various parts of the world. Ratings, the nature of some creatures may force the narrator to adjust one or more of their listed ratings, especially physical abilities. For example, a very agile creature has a high coordination score. However, if it lacks any manipulatory, en- manipulatory appendages, it like hands or tentacles, it isn't very good at dexterity related tasks like picking locks or disarming traps. In addition to the creature's scores in its four related abilities, the charts list its damage and defense ratings. As well, in case In cases where a given creature uses a special attack or defense instead of a normal damage or defense rating, its entry lists NA or not applicable. Damage The creature's damage modifier indicates the harm that its natural weapons can inflict in melee combat. This score is used just like the damage rating for a sword or other melee weapon. Unless otherwise indicated, animals and creatures cannot attack at ranges greater than melee. For example, a Jaguar has a Physique score of 8 and a damage rating of plus 7. Therefore, a melee attack by this creature would inflict 15 damage points, 8 plus seven, to an unarmored target. Defense. The defense category, which rates a creature's preferred and or natural armor, works just like a hero's armor and shield rating. Thus, if a creature with a defense rating of minus 3 suffers 12 damage points, its injuries total only 9 points, 12 minus 3. Special abilities The diverse abilities of the world's creatures have fascinated scholars since the dawn of time. The various special abilities appropriate to each species appear in a separate column in each creature chart. These abilities, described in sidebars throughout this section, help a narrator quickly determine exactly what a given creature might do in any situation. Many of these descriptions mention one of the eight character abilities either as a creature's opposition ability to a hero's action or as a guideline of some sort. For clarity, the descriptions refer to the specific abilities, such as presence, even though the creature chart entries list scores merely in their four related pairs. The distinction becomes important only when the narrator uses expanded creature ratings. Otherwise, the appropriate rating ability, such as essence, applies. Um, One thing to always remember is monsters never actively attack. In this game, because this game is centered around the heroes, it's always the heroes defending against the monster. This means it's, (laughs) ostensibly it's easier for me as the narrator to run a game because I don't have to worry about monsters attacking everything. But it also means that the players don't have to sit there and wait for me to do a bunch of rolls and math. It's all incumbent upon them. And so they feel like they're the center of the action. Special abilities. The descriptions of offensive abilities use the term attack to describe their effects in combat. This is merely a term of convenience. Any of the abilities could be used against the heroes in a foe's counter-attack, and often are. Aromancy. See the Aromancy school of sorcery. Alteration. See the Alteration mystic sphere. In some cases, a limit on this ability may be indicated parenthetically. For example, a creature with this listing Alteration avian could assume only bird-like forms. Animism see the Animism a Mystic Sphere, as with Alteration, an entry might note a parenthetical limitation, like Animism, Avian. Aura. An attack form or other ability described as an aura affects all creatures at melee range. Thus, everyone that comes within melee range of a creature with a Fear aura becomes affected by the Fear special ability. A narrator would then turn to the Fear description later in this section for details on this aura's exact effects. Camouflage. The difficulty of uh, surprising a creature with the camouflage ability or avoiding surprise from one becomes one degree higher than normal for the action. In most cases, the action is challenging against such a creature. In addition, camouflage allows the creature to encounter a group of heroes one range closer than the terrain type would normally demand, but never closer than melee range. Charm. Anyone affected by a charm attack must succeed in an average spirit presence Action to avoid falling under the control of his attacker. A charmed creature obeys all instructions the attacker gives him until the control is lifted, either voluntarily or through the charmer's death. A creature can charm a number of individuals equal to its spirit score at once. It can control no more than that number at any given time. Crush. A hero suffers additional damage when a mishap occurs during an attack against or defense from a creature with the crush ability. In either case, the extra damage inflicted equals the creature's strength score. Shields cannot protect a hero from crushing attacks. Cryomancy. See the Cryomancy school of sorcery. Death. Some creatures can instantly strike a living creature dead. When such a death occurs, the the target of the attack must make a successful average endurance spirit action or be instantly slain. A hero so destroyed can be revived only through the most powerful mystic spells. Despair. When a hero falls under the attack by a creature with this ability to cause despair, he must succeed in an average presence or spirit action, or find himself smothered in gloom and depression. While mired in the despair, the hero suffers the effects of the paralyze ability. See description later in this section. Dive. Many flying creatures hunt by diving from great altitudes onto their prey. Certain airborne creatures may begin a dive from either far missile or artillery range. The range of this encounter changes instantly to melee as the flyer swoops down upon its target. During the dive, the flyer may attempt a ranged attack, such as one using fiery breath. Defenders who are aware of the creature's diving toward them may employ missiles or thrown weapons during the dive, but the difficulty associated with such an attack increases to one degree above normal. At the end of the dive, the flyer receives a free melee attack. The hero can defend himself but cannot attack the creature, normal melee combat then can begin. Narrators and players should note that this ability is similar but not identical to... Wait, didn't it say it continues? Didn't it say it continued? Continued on page 96. Uh, this is 94, 95, 96. The dive attack ability of dragons. See the dragon section later in this chapter. Drain. Drain attacks number among the most dreadful special abilities an adventurer might encounter in a creature. This ability actually reduces one or more of a hero's ability scores. A character suffering a drain attack must attempt an average action to resist it, using his ability to be drained as the action ability, opposing the same trait in the attacker. Thus, avoiding a strength drain attack calls for a hero to make a successful average strength strength action. A hero who fails in this action loses a point from the specified ability score. This loss is permanent, although a powerful spell cast by a mystic can be able to restore the hero to normal, at least temporarily. Some creatures can make more than one type of draining attack. In such a case, the player should attempt to avoid both drain attempts separately. Fear. A hero affected by a creature's magical fear attack must succeed in an average presence spirit action to resist it. Should he fail, the hero finds himself overcome with fear and must flee the encounter at once. He may attempt no other action but retreat until the fear is lifted from him. Magical fear lasts for one hour after the hero has lost sight of the creature that frightened him. A fear's special ability differs from the natural ability of dragons to instill fear in those who see them. This dragon awe is described in the section on dragons. Geomancy. See Geomancy School of Sorcery. Hydromancy. See Hydromancy School of Sorcery. 798. Immune to many creatures seem highly resistant to certain forms of magic or mundane attacks. For example, an ice bear is immune to an attack that de- uh, depends upon cold or ice to inflict damage. Thus, it becomes all but impossible to harm an ice bear with magic from the Sorcerer School of Cryomancy. Other creatures might be immune to metal weapons, fire, or heat-based attacks, and so on. Infect. Some loathsome, filthy creatures carry terrible diseases with them. Any hero who fails to defend himself from a creature with an infect ability must succeed in an average endurance, strength, action, or become diseased. An infected hero loses one card every day, beginning the day after the infection, until he collapses, when the player discards his last card and dies one day later. Usually, only mysticism can cure such an infection. Kick One of the more common attacks of equines and similar creatures is a powerful kick delivered with the hind legs. Players and narrators should treat such a kick as a free second attack that inflicts the same number of damage points associated with the creature's other melee strikes. A creature cannot attempt to kick the same person it has just made its normal melee attack against, however. It will usually kick only when under attack by more than one individual. Lightning Some amazing creatures, from the Electric Eel to the Blue Dragon, can generate strong electrical charges. Any hero attacked by lightning suffers damage points equal to the creature's strength score unless he succeeded in an average Agility Dexterity action. And to remind everyone, um, the first title here, Agility, is what the hero uses to defend, and Dexterity is what he's using the enemy's Dexterity to defend against so if the dexter if the enemy has a dexterity of five and the hero has an agility of two they need to play a card from their hand of fate to equal you know like three or more in order to overcome the dexterity of the attacker so let's go to 100. meditation see the meditation mystic sphere mentalism see the mentalism mystic sphere missile weapons The listing for some creatures, mostly humanoids, indicate the use of missile weapons. Such beings can attack at both near and far missile ranges, not merely at melee range. Heroes attempt to avoid these attacks as they would any missile fire. However, for simplicity's sake, a successful attack inflicts damage points equal to the creature's melee attack, regardless of the missile weapon used. Humanoids with this ability frequently wield missile weapons such as bows, crossbows, and so on. In some cases, a creature might employ a natural missile weapon such as a porcupine shooting quills. It is assumed that the creature with missile weapons can attempt normal melee attacks as well. Any creature that can use missile weapons can use thrown weapons also. Musk. That's right. To mark their territory, animals in the wild commonly spray scented musk. In some creatures, this ability has evolved into a powerful weapon i wore my kilt to uh, a buddy's gaming night and we were playing cards against humanity and i had like this high chair that i was sitting on in my kilt and i was going regimental and i could smell my own fucking musk like, i'd showered the day i don't know what was going on but it was so bad i like uh, leaned over to the guy next to me i was like can you smell my musk and he was like yeah dude i've been dealing with it for a while can you just keep your legs closed it's pretty gross Anyone with a normal sense of smell who is subject to a musk attack must succeed in an average endurance strength action to avoid becoming ill. The action is easy for those with a diminished sense of smell. A hero who fails becomes nauseated. No card played by a nauseated character is ever Trump. The effect of a musk attack is even worse for a victim with an acute sense of smell. In addition to losing his Trump bonus, he must attempt all his actions as if they were one degree more difficult than normal until he gets rid of the odor in his clothes or person. All right, 102. Washing off the musk is a time-consuming process. It takes 10 minutes per attacker's strength point to wash off the scent. While washing eliminates the musk's negative effects, fully ridding one of scent, um, oneself of the scent required, a number of hours equal to the creature's strength score. Necromancy, see necromancy, mystic sphere. Nullify. Without a doubt, nullify is the most unusual and awesome of all special creature abilities. This power not only causes the victim to instantly vanish, but alters the memory of all sentient creatures to make it seem as if the victim had never lived. No one remembers his name, all his material goods go unclaimed, and his past deeds remain forgotten. Written accounts of a victim's actions still exist, but will almost certainly be considered fictional in the wake of his nullification. Only shadow and frost whites spawned by the Chaos God in the last days of the Fourth Age wield this incredible power. To avoid being swept out of existence by the touch of such a creature, a hero under attack must make a successful average presence or spirit action. Because of its dire ramifications, narrators should use creatures with this ability very sparingly. Paralyze. The Paralyze ability can prove far more deadly than one initially might think for it leaves a victim utterly defenseless. To escape a paralysis attack, a hero must exceed an average endurance, strength, action. Failure immobilizes him for a number of minutes equal to the attacker's endurance score. While paralyzed, a hero cannot attempt to defend himself from any assault. Someone with the appropriate talents can free a hero from paralysis using mysticism. A hero paralyzed by the despair ability of a shadow white can break free by making a successful daunting spirit or presence action. Petrify. Perhaps the best-known creature with the ability to petrify remains the snake-haired gorgon. A target of petrification is is instantly turned to stone and hence slain, unless he succeeds at an average endurance strength action. Only one, skilled in both mysticism and sorcery, can muster the magical energies needed to reverse a transformation to stone. Poison. Nature equipped many creatures with poison to help them defend themselves. Anyone who suffers damage from an attack made by a poisonous creature must succeed in an average endurance strength action, or find himself injected with toxin. While the outward manifestations of the poison may vary, the game effect is always the same. Starting the minute after he was affected, the hero's player gives up one card from his hand every minute. Whoa! When he loses his last card, the hero collapses a minute later dies. Oh, man. (laughs) Prompt first aid can help a victim cling to life, but only mystic healing can save a poisoned hero. Holy mama. Pounce. Any attempt to avoid surprise by a creature who can pounce becomes one degree more difficult than normal. If the creature attains surprise, two things happen. First. The encounter begins at melee range, regardless of the train type or other factors. Second, the creature instantly springs on its victim, closing to personal range and making a free melee attack. The victim of a pounce cannot attempt to defend himself from this attack. Pyromancy. See the Pyromancy School of Sorcery. Rake. When certain creatures enter combat, they follow their normal melee attack by raking their victim with rear claws or other natural weapons. This ability is most commonly found among Ancelon's great cats, like leopards and tigers. If a creature with this rake ability closes to personal range with its foe, it can attack twice in each combat exchange. The first blow represents its normal melee attack, while the second is a raking assault. A creature may rake its target during each exchange of blows, as long as it remains at personal range. Wow. Regenerate. The defensive ability to regenerate can make a creature far more deadly than it appears. A regenerating creature uh, regains three damage points per minute. However, regeneration cannot occur after death. Sensitivity. See the sensitivity. Mystic sphere. Spit. Some creatures can spit. I I think all creatures can spit. Either poison, oh, that's different, (laughs) or acid at foes. Although they are by no means the only special weapons of this type. A creature can spit at any one single individual and only at melee range. To dodge this assault, a hero must succeed in an average agility dexterity action. The creature can make a normal melee attack against one target and spit at another during the same exchange. The description of the poison ability offers guidelines for the damage a spitting attack might inflict. Sprint. Some animals and creatures can move very rapidly for brief periods of time. When a creature with the sprint ability wishes to close or open range, those resisting the attempt find their action one degree more difficult than normal. If no one opposes the range change, the sprinting creature can alter the distance of the encounter by two ranges. Thus, if a sprinter begins an encounter at near missile range, it can flee out to artillery range or suddenly close to personal range. Creatures can use this ability only once per encounter. That's crazy. Swallow whole. Many large creatures, including whales and dragons, have have maws so massive that they can swallow a man-sized creature in a single gulp. Any hero wounded at melee range by a creature with this ability to swallow whole must succeed in an average agility dexterity action or be consumed by it. A swallowed hero cannot attempt any actions and will die after a number of minutes equal to his endurance score. Only by slaying the creature that swallowed him and cutting him free can the hero's companions rescue their friend. Did you guys ever see the film, Nope? That's what this reminds me of. Once a creature has been consumed, creatures whose total endurance scores equal its own. It can no longer use its swallowing attack. It digests the creature it has consumed at a rate of one endurance point per half hour. Thus, a creature with a score of 30 that swallowed six normal men with scores of five each would find itself sated and unable to use its swallowing attack. After five hours, it would have digested two of these men. 10 total endurance points, and could swallow two more. Once digested, a hero cannot be restored to life. Throne Weapons The ability to use thrown weapons resembles that of wielding missile weapons. This ability, however, reflects a creature's fondness for spears, thrown rocks, and similar arms. Creatures can throw weapons at melee or near missile range, inflicting damage as though for melee attacks. Trample. Many very massive creatures can grind their enemies beneath their feet. Usually, a trample follows a successful attempt to close range. Whenever an animal with this ability successfully closes from melee to personal range, it can make an immediate attack by trampling an enemy, in addition to its normal assault. To escape a trample, a hero must make a successful average agility dexterity action. Failure means he suffers normal melee damage from the attack. If the victim of a trample cannot open range before the next exchange of blows, he's trampled again. Web. Spiders are not the only creatures who can make webs. Instead of making a normal melee attack, a web-spinning creature may attempt to ensnare its enemy. Anyone subjected to such an attack must succeed in an average agility, dexterity action, or find himself bound up tightly in sticky strands. An entangled character suffers a reduction in his agility score to just one point until he escapes. To free a trapped person or pull oneself free from the web, a hero must succeed in an average strength endurance action. All right. Let's see. Let's go back to the beginning of these monsters. I think that was it. Hostile non-humans. The race of tall, thin humanoids from a land east of Anslon was named Brutes by the Knights of Takeses, who used their rugged creatures as troops and slaves. Their blue painted skin frightens many civilized races, as does their rough-sounding language. The blue pigment reportedly provides Brutes with the protection of armor and resistance to magic in addition to healing properties. Ogres. Once the most beautiful of all races fell from the grace during the Age of Dreams, they now number among Kryn's ugliest, dimmest, and most brutal inhabitants. These savage and evil creatures average about nine feet in height and dress in skins and rags. Related to ogres are the many races of giants. Standing between eight and sixteen feet tall, these humanoids inhabit Ancelon's rugged landscapes. Cyclopses bear a distinguished single eye. In the center of their foreheads, the stupid... (laughs) Rude. The stupid hill giants revile their dirty two-headed kin, the ettins. The ravenous warty trolls, also of ogre stock, live in packs and have rubbery skin, sharp claws, and thin frames that hide surprising strengths. Goblins are sniveling, evil little creatures derived from the offspring of elves and ogres. What? Gross. The prolific beasts have flat faces, pointed ears, and sharp teeth. Bugbears, their tall, hairy cousins, have an appearance more suggestive of a carnivorous beast than a sentient creature. Perhaps the most intelligent of the goblin kin are hobgoblins, fierce, militaristic creatures as tall as a man. Gnolls, which resemble a cross between a hyena and a man, have greenish-gray fur and roam Ancelon in loose bands. And you can see all their stats right there. The cowardly kobolds, sadistic kobolds, I'm sorry, the cowardly, sadistic kobolds resemble three-foot-tall, skinny rats. (laughs) They hate gnomes above all the other races. All right, where's my dog barking at? sirens, beautiful, human-like females, live alone in aquatic environments and dislike intruders immensely. The zakar are a thane of dwarf dwarves to reckon with, plagued for centuries by a strange mold disease that once permeated the homes of Thorodin. these angry dwarves still suffer from illnesses that tatters their skin, raises lumps in their flesh, and ultimately drives them insane. Animals. The animals in the table on the next page match their normal world namesakes in every way. Giant versions of animals, such as insects, bats, eagles, etc., can grow 10 to 100 times their normal size. Ice bears, a cross between cave bears and polar bears, live in southern Ancelon. Mammoths serve as pack animals for Knights of Takesis. Dire wolves are larger than normal varieties of species. Wargs, an evil and intelligent offshoot, often act as goblin mounts. Dwarves harness the 30-foot tractor worms, also called urkan worms for the Lake of Thorbarn. To pull carts and work sleds. The tunneling of young worms tills the soil in the dwarves' farming warren. I did not expect those worms to look like earthworms. (laughs) Just like normal worms. Where's their mouths? Here's all the animals of Anselon. You can pause the video later if you want to see it. Lost folk. All their stuff. The lizardmen, called Bakali are stoop-shouldered, thick-bodied creatures with long tails. This suspicious race stays away from civilized folk. They seem savage, but have a strong sense of honor. Their legend tells them that they were created during the age of starbirth to worship the firstborn five dragons. The gray-skinned, tiny Holdra folk range from one to four feet tall. These large-eyed, large Uh, Long-fingered creatures each control one element of creation and can assume a variety of forms associated with that element. Mysterious, emotional creatures. The Holdra have apparently gone from Kryn, but left a legacy of 12 monolithic portals to their realm, the Grey. They look like aliens. Kairi, a race of hawk people, live peacefully in the dragon's spine, but will defend their nest to the death from the invasive minotaurs or other trespassers. They support... Their frail feathery bodies in flight by winged arms but can also walk on their taloned feet. Shadow people have large ape-like heads and bodies resembling a cross between man and bat. Their fangs and long claws make them formidable foes. Most considered this underground race mythical until they helped the heroes of the lands discover the corruption of the good dragon eggs by the dragon high lords almost 60 years ago. Many of the primitive walrus men, or thanoi, have been relocated from their polar home to the glacial southern Ergoth to serve the white dragon. Their impressive two-foot tusks, webbed and clawed feet, and layer of blubber, serve... First of all, the greatest word ever in our language. Blubber. It's just fun to say, right? Like, your your cheeks actually puff out as you say it. Blubber. It's great. Like salsa. That's another good one. Serve them well in the icy climes. Though these merciless creatures waddle on land, they swim swiftly. Special mounts. At times, the creatures in this chart on this page serve as mounts for those in need. However, players should never assume these creatures will react in a friendly fashion to heroes they meet. The fierce half-lion, half-eagle griffins often carry elves in battle and on missions. A griffin loves horse flesh and is more likely to serve as a mount than the hippogriff, half-horse, half-eagle, or the hippocampus, half-horse, half-fish. The giant telepathic owls of the Darkenwood carried Tannis half-elven during an adventure before the War of the Lance. Nightmares, black steeds with glowing red eyes and burning hooves, carry only evil riders. Rocks, 60-foot birds of prey, pegasi, and unicorns seem the most uh, particular of all about those who seek to ride them. And then their stats here. Monsters. The blue snake-like bay here, whose head resembles that of a crocodile, measures 40 feet long. Its dozen or so legs help this solitary horned monster slither quickly. A chimera is a territorial predator with the hindquarters of a goat, the forequarters of a lion, and the wings of a dragon. It also has three heads, goat, lion, and dragon, which tend to fight due to the hybrid's conflicting natures. The cockatrice, a turkey-sized creature that resembles a yellow rooster with gray bat wings and a lizard's green tail, seems too silly-looking to be dangerous. However, a touch of its fierce fowl's beak means death. Creatures formed from the very elements of air, earth, fire, and water come in a wide range of sizes and levels of intelligence. Their mastery of their specific element allows them to employ ingenious elemental weapons against foes, Water elementals have a low coordination rating on land than in their environment and must remain within artillery range of water. Gargoyles, ferocious, magical predators found in ruins will attack any creature in a surprising swoop. They prefer to inflict slow, painful death. Jeez. Gorgons, female humanoids with hair of snakes, petrify anyone who looks upon them. Ugly, smelly harpies have the body of a vulture and the torso and head of a woman. Their beautiful, beautiful strong entices victims. Oh, beautiful song I can't read. Entices victims to them to feast upon. A rare form of giant squid called the Kraken grows to a length of ninety feet. This intelligent creature breathes water and air and can drag a sixty-foot ship under the waves to its great maw. The Lords of Wales, Leviathans, measures up to one thousand feet long. One such monster lives in each of Kren's oceans, hibernating for years until called upon to respond to the needs of whales. What? I didn't know whales had that much control. A leviathan can swallow a target up to 80 feet long and inflict crushing blows with its fins and tails. Manticores have a lion's body, bat-like wings, and a man's head. These carnivores, roughly as tall as a man, are clumsy fliers but can shoot deadly spikes from their tail. Mermaids, and mermen, are creatures with the upper bodies of humans but the tails of fish. They dwell in undersea communities, but sometimes surface to sun themselves on rocks or attack ships. A naga is a snake-like monster with a humanoid head. These hostile creatures, found in both woodland and water environs, have been known to serve as village guardians. Before striking, a naga often uses mentalism to boost its mental ability scores, then reads its victims' minds. Ravenous, aggressive owl bears with the body of a bear, head of an owl, and a coat of feather and fur, have cruel tempers and inspire fear across Ancelon's forests. Wyverns, flying brown or grey lizards with no front legs, measure some thirty or forty feet long. Though relatively stupid, these aggressive monsters bear a deadly stinger in their tail. The ape-like yeti, eight-foot-tall denizens of cold climes, of icy blue eyes, and heavy hands and feet. Their thick, long white fur keeps their fierce hunter warm. Hunters warm. And ooh, we got some undead yeah undead the most eerily frightening creatures in Ancelon are the incorporeal undead banshees, the spirits of evil female elves scream in pain at the presence of the living Ghosts, died, emotional or wrongful deaths in hunger for their lost life clinging to dark places, shadows seek victims to drain of strength and transform into their own kind. Powerful specters hate the light and retain a frightening semblance to their living selves. Whites, dwellers in catacombs have mummified bodies, burning eyes, and sharp claws. Black cloud-like wraiths are the spirits of the evil dead seeking to absorb life energy. Some minions of Chaos remain to Plague Ganslon long after the close of the Chaos War. Daemon warriors, made of the stuff of nightmares, appear in different forms to different people. These ice-hearted warriors have glowing red eyes and may ride fire dragons into battle. Actually, my son's middle name is Daemon, spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. Shadow Whites. The black clouds of nothingness that once nullified the dra- Dark Knights, defenders of the High Claris Tower, can assume various forms also. They, like the White Frost Whites of Southern Ancelon take on the appearance of their victims, find most disturbing, and speak mesmerizing words of despair to convince a person he is nothing. One touch makes their words true. Blessed weapons can kill all of the above minions of chaos. Corporeal undead are mindless creatures. Skeletons and zombies act only to follow the commands of the necromancer who raised them, while ghouls range freely in search of human flesh in which to feed. A death knight. Oh, quick uh, note: knight of living dead. They're not zombies. They're ghouls. They're called ghouls in there. They're not called zombies until the um, dawn of the dead. A uh, death knight, the tortured shell of a knight who once betrayed his honor, is cursed with eternal unlife. He retains his warrior skills and can command other undead. Hero races. Most of the races in the chart above, uh, below are described more fully in Chapter 1, following the hero creation rules. Of course, we all know the hero races. One sub-race of dwarf, however, bears mention here. The agar, or gully dwarves, are backward, dumb, well-meaning little creatures who never mean to be obnoxious. But somehow, always manage it nonetheless. <laughs> these dirty, ever cheerful creatures live in the clans all over Ancelon. They are legendary cowards. The chart below distinguishes between heroes and common members of these races. As a rule, heroes are assumed to be a cut above their fellows, superior in many ways, as their scores reflect. Narrators can use the hero line of that appropriate race to create a hero for a player quickly, or when creating heroic cra- uh, characters, the adventures... Oh that adventure with the group. All right. I'm getting near my limit here. I was hoping to finish this, but I don't think that's going to happen. Oh yeah. I don't know how many more pages we got here anyway. Probably a lot. I'm just flipping through really quick. Yeah. This is too much for me to be able to do today. I'm going to stop at draconians and then, um, I'm probably not going to finish this, to be honest, because there's only, you know, there's only like 30 pages left, and it's all like monster stuff, so anyway, I think that's going to do it, thank you all so much for tuning in, I really do appreciate your time and attention, and, uh, you know, goofing off with me on this, I don't know, what is it, Wednesday, whatever today is, but that is it for this episode of Gaming Saga System what do you think of the saga gaming system is its focus on hero and story worth the challenge or the change in game mechanics and would you ever run a saga system game feel free to email me at info at or comment below i would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this youtube channel ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos and click the like button this all goes to help other dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga and i hope you'll join me in the celebration Thank you for watching. This has been Adam with Dragonlance Dog, and until next time, Slongevar.